The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Tuesday, December 21st, 2021, the winter solstice, which means it is the shortest day of the year, which means this is terrible news because that means tomorrow will not only be worse, as Julia Yaffe's pinned tweet will, uh, says every day, but that there will be more of it. Uh, today, we at least have the advantage of it's bad, but it's short. Um, and so I thought we would, um, we would today um, honor the disinformation environment by uh, having uh, a discussion of the Russia hoax hoax uh, from two people who have been writing about the effort to convince you all that the Russia uh, thing was actually not real, you know, that when Donald Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, uh, uh, you know, I hope you'll hack Hillary Clinton's emails, that you didn't actually hear that, you heard something else. And uh, so to celebrate the short time of the year, because we are, uh, we are going to have Jonathan Rausch and David Frum, but the Russians have hacked Jonathan Rausch's uh, audio. And so... We are going to start without him. We will bring him on as soon as we start, uh, as soon as he shows up and we can hear him. David, we are not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have your excellent piece in The Atlantic, uh, which uh, I was actually thinking of writing something similar myself, but now since you've done it, I don't need to. Um, how did you come to write a piece basically saying the earth really isn't flat. Well, first, I, I want to dissent from that we're not allowed to have fun because um, when, when the pandemic struck, um, the, but my kids would all say, um, you know, this is perfect for dad because dad hates fun. And I always insisted, I love fun. No one loves fun more than me. And what I believe is fun is exercise and homework. And so this, this is perfect. We're going to have we're going to have lots of each. Um, uh, I. Like, like I also, you, I, I have a quick question just before we get into the real. Is this the first time you've been interviewed by a corn cob in a hammock? I, I was just trying to tr pass lightly over that heinous. heinous <laughs> it's, it's filling up the comments on the side. And I, 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 I just I just think it's like one of those things like um, if you see a dwarf with a hunchback, you don't you know, you don't say, hey, dwarf with a hunchback. And. and <laughs> Well, I just want to say people have been the, the people, you know, on this show, there is a fierce debate yeah. about my dog shirts. And I thought I would give one to the people who are anti dog shirt. This is not a dog. Uh, as Virginia Heffernan complains, sure of dog it. shirts. Uh, it is not nipply. Um, yeah. Corn and, cob in a hammock is like a lot less subtle than nipply. 
Um, I'm just saying, <laughs> I'm trying to be respectful of the diversity of opinion about dog shirts. Yeah. And um, so, uh, Jonathan, I can tell by the smirk on your face that you can hear us now. <laughs> yeah, I can Excellent. hear you. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, All David. Right. Nice to see you. Sorry, so you David. Have, I didn't mean to cut in. No, you not have, at all. You have both written articles within the last few weeks uh, about uh, the hoax not yeah. being a hoax. And my question is, which member of the deep state approached you both and got you to do this in coordinated fashion? <laughs> <laughs> I I would not I would have to kill you if I told you that but I'll give you a hint he was wearing a dog shirt <laughs> great <laughs> we're off to a good start um, right well my, my last conversation with George Soros took place sometime around the year 1991 so it wasn't him um, and did he ask you to write this article uh, no, he explained to me his theory of reflexivity, which, and I have to say, I was just as unenlightened uh, at the end of the conversation as I was at the beginning. All right. Uh, Wait, was that your fault or his fault? Uh, opinions may differ on that question. <laughs> 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 um, my understanding is that uh, I kept saying, so what your theory of reflexivity is, is that things influence other things which in turn influence the first things back that's the theory and 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 i i it was more complicated than that but i never got the additional increment that, that made the theory a five billion dollar a 14 billion dollar idea instead of the you know <laughs> assistant editor at the wall street journal salary idea as between the Soros theory of reflexivity and the Marjorie Taylor Greene theory of Jewish space lasers, it's easy to see which one is the viral meme. Yeah. And why <laughs> yes. it succeeded. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, but so it wasn't a member of the DC. I think like, like I think Jonathan and I, we didn't have any coordination between, although we've known each other such a long time. On this case, we did not um, know that the other was working on it. But th there was a moment about a month ago where there began to be a bunch of articles, and not just from uh, the usual people who really would write, you know, uh, that 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 Trump completely justified in shooting that person on Fifth Avenue, who actually has been, who's in China, and not at all, even a little bit dead. Um, and anyway, it wasn't a gun; it was a pop tart. Uh, those people, um, we don't. So I don't worry so much about what they say. They say what they say, but but people who. Um, were reputable people who we know people who in many cases had good records on many aspects of of the trump experience um began um writing these articles about the uh, steel dossier and the um, the investigations it produced to suggest that that there was nothing to worry about in the connection between trump and russia people really should have known better and who at one point who i thought did know better um and so uh, that's what moved me is to say okay if this is if this uh uh, dismissal is colonizing people who were there, lived through the same experience. Then, then let's just do a roundup of all the things we know. And one, one last thing: I was, the, the thing that, that was kind of crazy making about the Trump years was is that Donald Trump is the least surreptitious criminal of all time. 
that uh, he just he I mean, everything happened. He, he, the whole thing is like a pen and teller act where they explain that they explain the trick as they're doing the trick. They comment on the trick. Um, they invite the audience into the trick. And then the, for people then to say it didn't happen. Um, but and, and then or sometimes people say, well, because they told because Penn and Teller told you the trick as they were doing it, therefore, therefore nothing happened. I mean, that because Donald Trump did it all in plain view, that that is some, that somehow means that the thing that you saw in plain view never happened in the first place. So, Jonathan, what caused you to uh, suddenly to write an article saying it actually wasn't a hoax? Well, it's a very interesting conversation. David and I have not had the opportunity to compare notes on this at all. And it's exactly the same story. So in my case, it begins being somewhat startled a few months ago when Jesse Single, who's a very good reporter on a podcast, mentioned that it's now been shown that Trump-Russia collusion is a hoax. And that got my attention because Jesse's someone who I think should know better. And then I started hearing it more and more. And then specifically, three people, I think maybe they're some of the same people David's referring to. I didn't name them in my article. They're all people I respect highly and read regularly and learn from. Um, one was Andrew Sullivan, one was Peter Berkowitz, um, and one was Eli Lake, all saying versions of, well, we now know that Trump-Russia collusion was not true or was a hoax or some version of that. I won't attribute each one specifically. Um, I must have seen those things around the same time David did, and it occurred to me with a, with a jolt. Um, Trump, MAGA, Bill Barr, they, they have won the public argument over Trump and collusion and the campaign in 2016. And by the, by the way, the FBI, they, they have just out and out won, despite the fact that the facts are not on their side. And that made me start to feel alarmed. And then that made me lobby you to write a book about it. And when you did not produce said books in your, in your customary three weeks, I got to work on it. Unfortunately, David had beaten me on it by then. So, I, I'm going to dissent with. I don't think they've won uh, at all, um, but I, I think they certainly are trying. And if if unchallenged, uh, th they could. Um, and that we're talking about within a sort of very specific part of the world, um, and it's our it's our job to make sure that they don't. And that I think that has been. I mean, I, I'm against any form of expressions of pessimism that everything is you know everything is always up for grabs so it's our it's our job to make sure that the record is remembered as the record sure right, so right right now sorry ben but just right now today granted yes i'm not giving up that's why i write uh, i didn't mean to imply that it's all over but but i did mean to imply that the conventional wisdom right now is that the fault if there was collusion that was by the fbi the uh, the steel and, and Clinton people against Trump, that that's the that's the current sort of box office score. Would you disagree with that? I would disagree with you. I would say it's more that what happens in this is and this is why it's been and another reason the Trump years have been so crazy making is that the people who would normally be focused on proving that Donald Trump that had an improper relationship with Russia and that matters are currently fixated on the fact that after that, Donald Trump tried to overthrow the Constitution of the United States by violence. And and the, the 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 thing is that you can only keep explaining so many things at so many times. And Donald Trump's ability to do bad things exceeds any other person's ability to catch up, keep up with the bad things and point out why they're bad. So I want to ask you both at a and I'm asking this a little bit tongue in cheek, 
but I think the exercise of explaining it is useful. Why does this question matter? For, for purposes of politics, nobody's going to vote on the question of whether the collusion thing was a real thing, a genuine concern, or whether it was a hoax. And the people who were going to vote one way or the other on that made up their minds a very long time ago. And to any respectable historian, um, the answer doesn't lie in words like collusion or hoax. It lies in a record. And so wh why is it important if some formerly respectable people are, you know, buying a certain snake oil and selling a certain snake oil? I have some, Jonathan, if you want to go ahead, I, mean, I have some thoughts on that if you want to go first. I'll let you go first. Okay. Um, it, it matters for a couple of reasons. Um, one is it matters not so much because of Donald Trump, but because of some other things that are going on in our in our part of the world, in our neighborhood, which is I, I noticed that um, the people we're talking about are people. Why, why are they ready to believe this thing? It's because they're, they, they imagine there's this thing called the left. Um, and they are, which they identify with variously uh, the editorial page of the New York Times or uh, the booking producers on MSNBC or uh, certain people in the government whom they don't like. And because these are people themselves of the liberal center, that those people are very present to them in a way that Steve, Steve Bannon and the violent attempt to overthrow the Constitution are not. That's remote. This is near. Um, and so that they are caught that there are people who are caught up in these narcissistic petty arguments. And uh, one of the things you're trying to say, that there's a real danger that this will become a habit and that in, in pursuing your quarrel with the editorial page of The New York Times or Rachel Maddow or um, James Brennan, uh, or Jim Clapper, rather, you're going to um, lose sight of what actually matters in American politics. So part of this is to yank back people like Jesse, like Andrew, and to say them like, you know what is important. Stop wasting your energy on things that are merely irritating. Um, this is one of the things that is, I think bothers me about the whole wokeness debate. That there's a lot about it that is wrong and there's a lot about it that is irritating, but none of it that is as important as the risk that we could you know, uh, lose the institutions of democracy in the United States. Um, and then the second reason it's important is because, um, as I said, because Donald Trump did so many bad things uh, there is a tendency for um, the critical mind to focus only on the most recent and for the whole record of them to be lost to sight. And I understand why the typical busy voter reacts that way. But the people who are have more time and space to think about political life, they need to keep the whole record in mind, which includes lots of bad things. And, and you should be able to have a reaction to all of them, not just to the most recent. So... Uh... My additions to that list, because all of that is, is absolutely right, um, is what I tried to do in my article. David's article actually is more complete and does a better job on the chapter and verse of what, what Trump did and the Russians and all of that. What I tried to add to the equation was understanding what they're really trying to do here and why it succeeds and why it's very dangerous. Um, and that argument is that the Trump's most, I think his most powerful political weapon, his ability to evade accountability while doing horrible stuff, um, breaking all kinds of norms, 
has a lot to do with his virtuosity of manipulating the information environment to confuse people, to disorient people, to change the subject, to turn back any charges against him. I'm not the puppet, you're the puppet. And that what he's doing with the collusion affair is one of a number of proof tests of how to do this. It's a textbook disinformation. It's important to understand first that he's doing it and second, how he's doing it in order to resist it because these are very powerful techniques and we're seeing that now. So in my article, I also try to figure out, so how did he do this? How does he persuade so many smart people, the kinds of intellectuals and elites that rank and file tend to take their cues from in terms of understanding of de deciding what to believe? How does he fool us? How, how's he doing it? And I come up with some answers to that. They involve repetition and, uh, and narrative reversal. Um, and I think it's very important to understand what they're doing because we're very vulnerable to it. So I'm going to ask a quick question, which is like, I'm hearing two things. One is that the reason that this is important is basically because you can't control the narrative or destroy, look, can't control the narrative. And I'm unclear whether you're saying that the important thing here is that Trump is controlling the narrative such that he is changing the subject, which I feel is like what David is saying. He is pointing us away. We are getting distracted by this like shiny object wokeness or like all of this kind of whatever and like getting getting lost in kind of like the okay now we're like we've bought his talking points and we're going to like leave this story alone um and get away from like kind of a lot of the things that are really important about saving democracy um or whether it is that he has actually it's it, it's not about distraction it is about actually um how do I say this? Uh, uh, just kind of um, owning, like kind of just like taking over the narrative so completely. And maybe those are the same thing. And I'm kind of making a useless distinction here. But it seems like one thing to kind of be like, here, don't pay attention to this thing. But honestly, like this is kind of a nature of reality type of question, which is like, well, if everybody's talking about this thing, doesn't it become a thing? Like, isn't that very much how this all has happened this entire mm. last six years is like, it really doesn't, I mean, this has kind of been my struggle with the mis and disinformation debate, frankly, is like at a certain point, if enough people are talking about the disinformation, the question of whether it's disinformation becomes secondary to the fact that it's news, that disinformation is out there. Those are two different things. I don't know if I'm making complete sense well, right now. Well so I'm sorry to no no go ahead I was, because I think that in the Russia Trump Russia story there is actionable information that um, that is is useful to understand once we understand what the story really is um, uh, and I uh, and what it isn't we understand not only our recent history but we understand this person who was president and could be a Republican nominee again the essence of the Trump Russia story was it revealed that there was nothing that Donald Trump would not do for a dishonest dollar? I, I never believed for a minute the Compromat story. Um, and it just struck me as uh, Compromat only works if a person is capable of shame. Uh, Compromat is only works if if a person wants Truly. to keep his, 
uh, his or her marriage intact. I mean, like what? Like supposing the PP tape story had been true, Donald Trump would not have been embarrassed. Melania would not have left him. Um, you know, uh, he, he. Why would that bother? That the idea that you know he he. That, but what it did show that what what the parts of the story that were true was that this person could run for president of the United States while operating a business at the same time, which is no one has done in the modern era, in the post Watergate era, and actually seek business in the amazingly corrupt and um, uh, adversarial environment of Moscow and lie about it and get everyone around him to lie about it. And that tells you something about Donald Trump that is important to understand, which is that the fundamental thing to understand about this person is that he is a giant crook. Um, and this, he is so crooked that he, th this kind of crookedness, and he's not even that clever a crook. He's not doing anything very complicated. It's brazen. And if you understand that you are, that you are then, it, it has predictive power. It can tell you what he will do and what he won't do. It can tell you how the Trump Hotel is going to work. When 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 uh, a government agency is in charge of saying, you know, will he run this on? Will the this person who could be president accept this lease and run the property on the up and up? It tells you no, he just can't. That's not his nature. He will not do that. So it's useful information, um, and it it also is um, useful information about the attitudes of people around the administration. It was one of the things that happened through Trump Russia. Uh, is, is, Donald Trump lied and lied and lied about his connection to the Trump Tower Moscow deal. But a lot of other people who had no good reason to lie also lied. Like Michael Flynn, uh, uh, General Flynn was not involved in the Trump in the Trump Russia story. Jeff Sessions was not at all involved in Trump Russia. They had no reason to lie. They knew, it, I, I keep thinking of it, it's like a, um, a detective story where the people around the suspect, who are his friends or dependent on him, they know that there's a closet in the house that he has tried to lock. And they know there's a terrible smell coming from that closet. And they know the police keep looking at the closet and jiggling the door handle. And then the police ask them, have you been anywhere near that closet? And they don't know, they do not themselves know what's in the closet. Uh, they just know this is, it is not healthy to be in any way connected to this closet. And so they lie. And that lying then became really important to the foreign policy of the Trump administration. It explained a lot of what happened that led to the Ukraine investigation, that there was this, there were these secrets that people around Trump didn't understand, but they knew they had to protect. All right. So Jonathan, I want you for the layman who is, uh, you know, has read some Eli Lake, got a little bit of Andrew Sullivan thrown in there, you know, uh, maybe maybe heard uh, Peter Berkowitz, uh, read him on RCP, and is thinking, oh, this uh, this Trump Russia shit. I guess it, you know, didn't really even amount to anything, and the left, you know, made such a big deal about it. I guess we should round it to zero. Uh, <laughs> Remind us and take such time as they say in Congress as the gentleman may require. Remind us what the actual Trump collusion story was. Well, there's so much to choose from. Um, and it is important. Kate, just a, a footnote to your last question. I think I understand where you were going with your last question, which is on Russian election interference there was probably more noise about the interference than there was actual effect of the interference. Yeah. Um, that is not the case with Trump-Russia collusion because there hasn't been anywhere near enough noise about that 
at least there isn't at the moment compared to what actually happened. There needs to be more noise about it. That's why David and I wrote what we wrote. So what should there be noise about? In my article, David has more, but in my article, I chose to make seven points. Uh, first, the Trump campaign eagerly and knowingly accepted overtures from the Russian government, that is from people who are saying Russian government to provide dirt on Hillary Clinton. Any reputable campaign would have immediately called the FBI. The Trump campaign said, we love it, bring it on. They were trying to collect intelligence dirt on their opponent from a hostile adversarial foreign government. That seems kind of like collusion. Number two, Trump publicly, not at a rally, often forgotten detail, at a press conference, asked the Russians to illegally, that is violate US law, steal and dump Clinton campaign documents, which later that same day, Russian intelligence does. That looks like coordination in full public view and being in full public view doesn't make it any less coordinated. It's surely not a coincidence. By the way, Trump has said I was just being sarcastic. You can look at the footage of the press conference. A gobsmacked reporter says, are you serious? Do you really mean it? And he basically says, yes. You know, it's in Trumpese, so it's a word salad. But he says, why shouldn't I be serious? Number three, the Trump campaign and its associates had at least 100 contacts, by some counts 140, with assorted Russians, including people who are known to be tied to organized crime and Russian intelligence. That's according to, among other sources, the Mueller report and the Senate Intelligence Committee account, which is bipartisan. Republicans signed off on it. That's a lot of contacts between a campaign and an adversarial former government. That doesn't just happen routinely. Uh, number four, Trump's uh, campaign chairman, the guy at the very top, you know, not some flunky. The guy at the very top provided internal campaign materials to a long-term business associate of his who just happened to be, according to both the Senate report and the U.S. Treasury Department, a Russian intelligence operative. So the guy at the top of the campaign is providing campaign inside information to Russian intelligence. Does that sound like collusion? Number five, the campaign team including Trump himself, was well aware of potential plans by Russia's WikiLeaks partner. They've been identified as a cutout for the Russians to dump stolen documents. And the campaign kept tabs on this effort, made an effort to understand when it was happening in order to, uh, and tried to schedule it in order to exploit it. Number six, uh, Trump and Michael Cohen, his fixer, are asked directly whether they had business dealings and ongoing uh, arrangements with Russia, business arrangements, and they lie, point blank. They just deny it. This is the point that David made earlier. Um, and to me, what is in some ways the most telling of all and the one that's most frequently forgotten is number seven. Look, the way a normal patriotic law-abiding American reacts when approached by a hostile adversarial foreign government to provide intelligence on a political opponent, in other words, to interfere in the campaign, is you pick up the phone and you call the FBI. And you tell everybody in the campaign, don't have anything to do with this. Um, that's not what happened. 
at no point when all of these other things are going on at no point do Trump and his people report Russia's activities to U.S. law enforcement. Instead, according to the Senate Intelligence Committee report, the campaign was, and I quote, elated by what it regarded as a gift from WikiLeaks. Now, to me, it's impossible to look at this fact pattern and not see collusion if that word has any meaning in the English language. All right, um, David. Wait, hold on, oh, can I just... Sure. Okay, sure, go, go ahead. ahead. But I'm just going to say something to link what David had said before with what Jonathan just said, which is that basically, like, you've said a few times that he's just like a crook, which I very much buy, but I want to like, kind of like put a point on that, which is like, he's not just a crook, like a lot of people like call him like evil, and like immoral and all of this. And I actually think that like, maybe he's a nice guy, as some people say in person or is charming and funny or whatever. I actually think that could be true because I actually think that everything that Jonathan, those seven points, what that resonates to me as are business decisions and people who make decisions not based on like any type of ethics or morals or whatever, but like basically based on like power and avarice and kind of greed and like control of more information and like any good blood, well, like red-blooded American would pick up the phone and call the FBI, but like that's not the world in which he operates, which is precisely why he has been so norm disruptive in this office. Um, but anyways, I, I mean, I'm not like saying anything that's actually like striking anyone as new, but it is that there is like, he doesn't necessarily have to have a black heart. It's just that he like it is operating under impulses that are just completely exogenous to the office of the president of the United States. Look, Does that crooks, make sense? No, that made no, no. sense. Crooks, crooks are often charming. Um, uh, and unfortunately, um, people of the word are often especially vulnerable to the charm of crooks because uh, because they, that, that, you know, those, those of us who always actually wait for the light to change before we go across the crosswalk, um, you know, we're, we get a little thrill from the people who, you know, um, smash the, um, drive, the, the driver's w window of a car that offends them. It's, it's sort of exciting to see. But th there, I, there is no country. I, mean, I, I have only been in a room with Donald Trump. My, my wife had dinner with him. We were at a fancy dinner, and no, this is now 20 years ago, and she got the seat next to him at this fancy dinner and sat with him for three hours and found him very amusing, very entertaining. His crookedness was one of the reasons he was so amusing, um, because he respected no because he respected no rules, because he was willing to say terrible things about his good friend who was the ho who was paying for the dinner that we were all enjoying. Um, that that was kind of funny about um, that he was willing to entertain and be entertained. Uh, the that is not at all contradictory with having, when you say a, a, a black heart, I mean, having no respect for decency, no respect for norms, it doesn't mean you have to be boring. Um, uh, you know, many many people who are very be decent are, I mean, every romance novel is based on the premise that the decent guy tends to be kind of boring and the indecent guy tends to be kind of thrilling. No, no, I, I do, like, I think that those, I, I want you to, that I'm not going to, like, delay this much longer, but I just was going to say that, like, I, I'm, that was a little bit, aside from what I was saying, I was basically saying that, like, I think that the relationship he has with the WikiLeaks, for example, as, like, Jonathan's last point, like, the relationship he has with that type of information is that it's the truth 
the truth is like buoys his power. He thinks that he has this truth and then he can use it as a commodity, like to like to shore up power rather than to treat it like some type of like, like okay. some type of noble good. No, no, I want to I want to deflect you from this entire line of thinking. Um, the whole debate on what goes on inside Donald Trump's brain is not relevant anymore. Donald Trump has been out of power for almost a year. Uh, he has lost his Twitter account. He is off of Facebook. He is in some ways more powerful than he was a year ago in terms of his control of the Republican Party, which we thought he was going to lose as a result of the election and then his post-election conduct. And we have now seen that all the tactics that he employed in convincing the world that Trump and Russia was a hoax are tactics that others can use as well. And the Republican Party is using them. We need to think of this as an institutional attack by MAGA, which is I've become comfortable using the term American style fascism to think about what this thing is. But this is a movement which has its sights set on American democracy and is using sophisticated forms of information warfare. And one of the most sophisticated and successful examples of that, number two after Stop the Steal, is uh, no collusion. So we need to get out of Trump's head. That is not what's important. No, you're we, right. need to, we need to understand what's being done to liberal democracy here and how dangerous this is. So David, I wanna ask you for your version of the Trump-Russia story, um, uh, assuming that you would not uh, disagree with any of the seven points mm -hmm. that Jonathan mm -hmm. I made. Them all. Yeah. I also assume you would tell the story a little bit differently. From your point of view, if you had the person influenced by Lake Berkowitz and Sullivan in front of you, and they said, but isn't this all bullshit? What would you say to them? I said, the story of Trump Russia is the story of the least bankable name in the New York real estate industry. Um, at a moment of desperation, um, deciding to go into money laundering for a living. Hmm. Um, and, and that the story of the Trump empire after, I mean, Donald Trump goes bust a bunch of times. Um, and he goes he, he goes bust in a, the most spectacular way at the end of the 80s, but he goes bust again in um, at in the early 2000s. And when he goes bust that second time, and now he's lost virtually everything, everything he inherited from his father, everything the banks are willing to lend him, that his his solution to the problem is a series of money laundering adventures that begin, they come into view about 2006 with this strange purchase of a multi-million dollar house in Palm Beach, uh, which looks and people who watch the Rachel Maddow show know all the details. It looks very like a mon money laundering operation. And then it progresses uh, through the sale of the condominiums in Florida. And it becomes, Russia is not such a big place. It becomes known to people in Russia that one American businessman with a very bank, with a very famous name is willing to do things that the other people will not do because it's too dangerous. It's legally, you can, you might get caught and be punished. Many of these things are, could expose your business to, to risk. So that there is this guy who is willing to, launder your money and he comes more and more to the attention of important people in russia and comes more and more to the attention of the center of of russian power and then uh and he's had this long-standing fantasy this this money launderer of doing a big big deal in russia that starts in 2013 uh, where it really inflames that's when he launches the trump tower and the trump tower project moscow goes nowhere from 2013 to 2015. And then in 2015, Trump becomes a leading candidate for the Republican nomination. Remember, he declares in June. By July, he's the front runner. He's the front runner every week from 
uh, July of 2015 until the Republican nomination, except for one week in, I think, November when he briefly loses it um, uh, to Ben Carson. But otherwise, he's the front runner. And at that point, the Trump-Russia deal comes alive. Um, and it goes to Putin, and it looks like it's, it's really going somewhere. And the Russians are dangling this tasty morsel in front of his nose. And he has then, um, and then they explore ever closer cooperation with the campaign to help this guy. Because here's the thing to think about this. So Russia has a GDP about the size of Italy. It's, it's except for its reckless adventurism and its gas reserves, it's not really a great power. This is not China. Um, it, it is, it's a military, it's a military power, but it's, 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 a, it's a weak place. And they can read the polls as well as, as anybody else. They know it's overwhelmingly likely that Hillary Clinton will win the 2016 nomination. And they still decide to take this extraordinary risk to hurt Hillary Clinton and help Trump. It had to be worth it. There had to be a big prize. This is not something you do because you don't like Hillary Clinton. This is, it's just too dangerous. Uh, and uh, they they went ahead. And so they they must have had some reason for this series of explorations and contacts. And as Jonathan said, um, they began to explore. Well, um, what, what happened with the Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016 was they sent an agent to test whether the Trump people would receive negative information from the Russian state. It was advertised as coming from the Russian state. Now, that person arrived with a, with a briefcase full of shredded paper. Um, that the, the, the briefcase expected to be full of money. It was full of shredded paper. The agent did not, in fact, bring dirt. But what the agent ascertained was that the Trump people were willing to receive the dirt. As Jonathan said, they didn't call the FBI. They took the meeting. Um, and it's, it's just a couple of weeks after that. I think the meeting is June 6th or 8th, if I remember right. And then it's about the 25th of June that Trump issues his open appeal to the Russians to intervene. And sure enough, at that point, this stuff that they have stolen over a, a period of time begins to be released by WikiLeaks. It's, it's released in two big dumps, one in July and one in October. And it's, it's very intelligently timed to help Trump. And people around Trump know it's coming. They don't know exactly when, and they don't know exactly what's in it, but they know that it's coming. They especially know that the October dump is coming. Um, and they get actually a little impatient and fretful, and they begin to complain because it doesn't come when they think it should come. And, then, and people like Roger Stone and Alex Jones are saying, what's going on with Julian Assange? We're expecting this dump any day. It's not happening. It's supposed to happen on Tuesday. It's supposed to happen on Wednesday. And Julian Assange himself does not even seem to know when the dump is coming. That he, he calls a press conference, I believe, for a Tuesday, and thinking there's going to be a dump, and it doesn't come that day. He has lost control of the material that is routed through his, supposedly his, or through WikiLeaks, supposedly his organization. But it, it does dump, and it has a huge impact on the election. Um, so that, that's the, the, the story I would tell. Is, does, 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 is Trump a Russian asset? No, he's too unreliable and flaky and weird and too driven by his own agenda. Um, is there a back and forth communication? Probably not. It looks like both sides were acting. They were, they, they were kind of signaling to each other, but they never probably seems to have been in direct contact one with another. Um, uh, is this a criminal conspiracy as prosecutable in U.S. law? law? Evidently not. Uh, at least the, um, the Mueller investigation decided not. Um, is it a huge national security risk? I think so. Is it a sign of the most corrupt administration in American history and there is no runner-up? Hmm. For sure. All right. Um, may I, ben, may I add a please? friendly amendment? Please. So, going back to the point you're making earlier, there's the story David just told of unprecedented corruption in terms of the business dealings and, and all of that. 
and then the even greater corruption of uh, working in collaboration, whatever you word you use, with Russians against the American election and constitution. But setting all that aside, there's the even bigger story, the meta story, which is why I came back to it. And I think maybe why David came back to it, why I hope others will, which is not only did they get away with it in terms of public opinion, they've gotten away with flipping the story so that many people now believe if there was collusion and a conspiracy, it was because the people charged with lawfully investigating Russian attempts to penetrate American election campaigns were conspiring against Donald Trump. They have flipped the corruption story. They have redefined law enforcement's best efforts to understand what foreign adversaries <clears throat> are doing against our elections and hmm. constitution. They have flipped that. So that is now the wrongdoing. This I is see. fundamentally inconsistent yeah. with liberal democracy. So in that flipping, uh, uh, which I think is the most important aspect of the memory holding of this, it, it's it's the projection of uh, the collusion onto the other side. Um, uh, Pete Strzok plays a particular villainous role, and I have his voice right here. Pete, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? We can. Um, and no for video. Those of you who'd... Because I'm wearing no then I'm wearing black to go with a villainous image. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Well, you know. Yeah. Look, I can't help your camera situation. That's between. But but this gives you a more kind of ethereal uh, uh, presence. Uh, so Pete, you have been fretting for a good long time about the way this story is changing yeah. in the public mind and the way. Uh, uh, people have managed to, you know, turn the story on its head. So I'm interested in your uh, your sense of these two pieces and uh, what it will take to actually remind people of what really happened. It's a great question. I mean, first, David and John, I thought both of your pieces were excellent. Uh, I, I admire and, and thank both of you for writing them when you did because it's important to have countervailing, accurate voices out there telling the truth. And so I appreciate that. And, and, and David, I'm particularly happy to welcome you to the Coalition of the Willing about Ben's shirts. Um, first the dog shirts and now apparently agricultural ones. If only Khrushchev had had that in 1959 in Iowa, the, the course of the Cold War might have turned out differently. If, but um, If they had just changed people to corn, that is really... I, well, <laughs> do I, and I'm certain the Soviets, I would not put that past them to, to do that had they had they had the technology to do so. Um, I, I am... It, it is concerning to me because I don't think this narrative is done being written. I think it plays very well into the idea of and you see Trump doing it now, that the, the deep state, of course, is still out. And it's not Russia, Russia anymore. It is now, you know, the evil deep state going after these people who rallied for the cause of liberty uh, and, and the, the big lie of the, of the vote. So, you know, law enforcement is now chasing these patriots, imprisoning these patriots. And so there's a through line of the, the federal investigative state and process continuing to do evil and harm against Trump. So it makes a nice through line logically. I do, my, my question for, for you both is, you know, turning to the longer view of how the narrative is written, and I, David, I agree with you that it's, it's not lost and that it's, it's ongoing. 
I do wonder what happens when John Durham finishes. I anticipate at some point he will publish some sort of report that Merrick Garland will be hard pressed not to publish in some form or fashion. I don't know what it's going to say. <clears throat> I know he has not spoken to me um, about the origins of the investigation. To my knowledge, he has not spoken to Jim Comey or Annie McCabe or Bill Priestep, um, who would seem to me to be folks that if you were trying to understand what the genesis of these investigations were, you would want to hear those perspectives. Um, and what concerns me is whenever this report comes out, there is no natural constituency or individual within the government to defend the the counter narrative you know director Mueller is not going to speak uh, to that director ray has been over backwards in congress and other places to say i don't really know anything about it that entire team is gone i've replaced my leadership team and so i have some question as to who when this comes out takes up the mantle and continues this drive of yeah. laying down the truth and i guess my the second question related to that, is it going to matter? I mean, I assume he's going to be done sometime later this next year. At the same time, the midterm elections are coming up. At the same time, a lot of January 6th prosecutions are coming to a head, the complex ones, the conspiracies. And is this going to be, you know, something that the, the general American public just frankly isn't going to index on at all? Uh, well, let me, a thought here on that, because I, I, I know a little bit about, I don't know, I think I know a little bit about this. And... Um, I, it's a it's a very valid concern. Um, the 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 key of the uh, of the Trump operation to repurpose an old joke is that it's despotism mitigated by slovenliness. Um, and uh, there's an old joke about the Austro-Hungarian Empire: tyranny mitigated by schlumperi. Uh, that uh, one of the people they have not talked to about the origins is it, at least the last time I checked, was Alexander Downer, uh, the man who set the whole thing in motion. They haven't talked to him. Um, and uh, how you do an investigation on the origins of Trump Russia without talking to the man who was at the origin of Trump Russia, I don't know. So my suspicion um, is that, that he's going to turn in a typical Trump, terrible piece of work that is going to be, and that is going to work the way a lot of, a lot of the pro-Trump stuff does, which is this massive accumulation of detail um, that is designed to make up for the lack of basic structure. And so you're going to hear a lot about a lot of obscure Russian names. Uh, you're going to hear a lot about um, Carter Page. You're going to hear a lot about, but just actually sort of going to how did this start? He's not going to want to go there um, because, uh, because Downer is just too dangerous for him to talk to. And uh, the, the downer story is it's so powerful and true. Uh, and and just I, to remind people, the downer story is okay. the story so, about George so, Papadopoulos blabbing about uh, about. Uh, so the, the story the is Russians having these the emails. key thing that the Trump, the Trump people want to tell you is that the whole idea that there's some untoward connection between Trump and Russia began when this former British intelligence agent named Christopher Steele, who was originally hired by Paul Singer, who was a supporter of non-Trump Republicans, and that uh, the, the, that commission was then handed off to the Hillary Clinton campaign, and he generated a lot of information, a lot of barroom talk, basically. Um, most of it, much of it looking pretty worthless and some of it looking like outright, right? That, that was the start. But in fact, the investigation started earlier, and it started because this man named George Papadopoulos, who was a minor sleazy operative, um, but who had got uh, who had got close to 
the Russian world and who had picked up sometime early uh, in 2016 that the Russians had Hillary Clinton's emails uh, and who was trying to mag get himself into a position of power by magnifying his own importance, he sought out the Australian High Commissioner in London for a drink. And, uh, and this would have been in about, I think, if I remember right, about April of 2016. And uh, he had one drink too many and then began to explain how he knew uh, that the Russians had Hillary Clinton's emails and that they were going to use them. And Downer then wrote a report to his own government about this, which was then appropriately, uh, per, uh, under the intelligence sharing agreements between Australia and the United States, shared with the FBI. And the FBI said, well, if there's this loudmouth wandering around uh, London saying that the Russians have hacked the emails Everyone of one of yeah. that, that this is this is our business. And that's how it started. All right, Mr. Wattenbarger. Hello. Or is yours? Hello. Um, so, Jonathan, you wrote in your persuasion piece about how the repetitions of the lies about the FBI and about the Trump campaign's conspiracy with the Russians were effective in persuading large numbers of people to actually believe uh, these things. Um, and uh, so I'm wondering in your, you know, in your view, um, to what extent are the major news organizations by not reasserting the evidence that they are that, that that's out there that we have you know from the Mueller report and so on uh to what extent are they responsible uh for these outcomes um are there editors in newsrooms who are just telling their reporters you can't write that or are they afraid of criticism for the right is do they have a twisted notion of what um journalistic integrity is or what 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 do you what do you think is going on here? Well, I don't. Uh, I don't have any inside information on on newsrooms, and of course, the media is many, many different organizations and people. Uh, but my sense of it would, my, my first instinct would be to go back to something David said earlier, which is, uh, when Trump is in office, and even when he's not in office, he's a fountain. Uh, he's he's an overwhelming torrent of norm violations and you just can't keep your eye on all of them and it just becomes easier to follow simple heuristics and a heuristic in this case becomes well steel dossier said collusion steel dossier disproven therefore collusion disproven and then you move on because you've got a pandemic to deal with you've got the wheels coming off build back better bill um, you've got inflation and you've got, by the way, pretty growing threats to the integrity of the 2024 elections. So I, I don't entirely blame them, but I do think it's important that people like me and David and other people on this call keep the truth alive. Hmm. So, um, Reverend Dr. Hillary Livingston, the floor is yours. Hello. Well, um, thank you for um, sharing your wisdom with us, Jonathan and David. And uh, Ben, your shirt's kind of corny, but we appreciate your kernels of wisdom. Um, Excellent. Thank you. So, so um, my question is, how important is it for regular people, like regular people being outside of the political punditry class or people who watch nerdy webcasts, to understand the, the whole Russian collusion thing and... Um, and how to make them care about it, because it seems like a lot of people maybe don't. So that's my question. Thank you. 
Uh, I'll go first, but then David, my, uh, you, it's not their job to know the details about that. And it's not even their job to care about it. You know, it's voters job to care about where their next paycheck is coming from and the value of their dollar and whether they're employed and whether we're in war or peace. This is the job of so-called elites. That is to say, this is the job of opinion makers and experts who really need to know this stuff and who through our writings and work project to people, um, Oh, they use they use fairly straightforward heuristics themselves, which is what are the people I respect say about this? And if the people they respect, including people who are in other contexts, anti-MAGA people are saying, you know what? There was no collusion. It was a hoax. Steele behaved terribly. The FBI behaved even worse. If that's what they're hearing, that's what they'll go with. That's why it's so important that people like us in positions to know get this right. Mm -hmm. um, th there was a... A, a saying or a tag during the Trump years, LOL, nothing matters. Um, and and I always thought that was that was completely wrong. The truth is everything matters. It's just there's a lot of everything. Uh, and uh, and it, it all mattered. It all had a cumulative impact. I mean, it, it needs to be remembered. Just here's a thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about Donald Trump and his impact on American life. Since the year 2000, there have been six presidential elections. There have been 12 people nominated to represent one of the two big parties in those six elections. Donald Trump finished respectively 10th and 11th out of those 12 people. The only person who did worse in those 12 elections was John McCain running as the party of the incumbent, uh, of the party of the president during the, uh, at the end of the Iraq war and in the throes of the worst economic collapse since the Great Depression. Um, so the American people each didn't like him. Uh, in any meaningful way that you can talk about the American people uh, as an aggregate, uh, he was a very he was the he was the only president in history who was never above fifty percent approval in any reputable poll on any day of his presidency. He was a massively and he, and he ended up losing re-election. Uh, you know, you look at the presidents who have lost re-election. I mean, Herbert Hoover after one term, Herbert Hoover in the D D Great Depression, Jimmy Carter with 20% interest rates, uh, G George H.W. Bush in the middle of, at the end of the Cold War with a party split. Um, this is a guy with the United Party in what had been a pretty good economy in the middle of, an, of a pandemic that everywhere else in the developed world made it incumbent numbers go up, not down. Um, and he lost because the American people just thought he was a jerk and a creep. Um, so it's important to keep all of that, not to buy into that other MAGA line, which is that Donald Trump was some expression, popular expression of the American people. He was massively not popular. Um, but and so everybody had their own reasons. And uh, I'm not here to argue with you. I mean, if you voted against him because you thought he was a terrible father, I'm not I mean, I don't that's not I mean, he was, but that's not the basis of my vote. But I'm not going to argue with you and say that the reasons I think you should vote against him are more important than the reasons you voted against him. But so we're doing this a little bit for history. We're doing it for national security because it, it really was a, a huge problem for the national security of the United States. Um, and, and, and we're doing it um, because uh, to sort of warn off the Russians from trying a similar thing ever again. Um, and th that as Russian troops are now massed on the borders of Ukraine, as we could be entering a pretty terrifying geopolitical situation um, in 2022, that um, they need to know that um, American uh, informed American circles have their number um, and object to what they did. And that there's going to be there. There was a cost for their help to Donald Trump and there will be a cost for the worst, even worse things they are contemplating for the year ahead. And I, I'd add we're also doing it for the FBI, which goes back to what Pete said earlier, 
they're our only line of defense, right, against foreign intervention. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration cannot pick this up if the FBI is not in a position to investigate foreign intelligence penetrations into the heart of our Constitution. And so we, we've got to get that story right. All right, Andy McCurdy, you get the last question today, and it's a doozy, and I'm going to broaden it very slightly when you uh, when you articulate it. So you guys both seem to uh, write it in response to certain writers saying it was a hoax. Uh, these writers come from a very specific crowd that I find super interesting, and I'm curious if either of them have responded or critiqued your uh, writings. I know David has been on a podcast with Sullivan at some point recently. Um, do you, what do you think it would take to change their minds? And uh, has there been any response among these writers? Thank you. Yeah, and so I just want to broaden that to what has the response been in general, uh, not just from from Sullivan and Single and yeah. and Berkowitz, but from the community of people that you were trying to to influence. Um, well, there's a long article in Commentary by Eli Lake that is is very much a point by point response uh, to to uh, a number to both Jonathan's piece and mine. Um, Andrew, um, when I was on the podcast with him, really didn't um, go into many, many details about it. Um, I, I think it's, it's important to understand that what I think is driving a lot of these folks is uh, that they have other, they are not in any way apologists for Donald Trump, but they have other fish to fry that seem to them more important. Um, and uh and maybe, I think in Andrew's case, he may exaggerate the extent to which Donald Trump is over and done with yesterday's business. Um, I think with some of the other writers, this may be true of, of um, Brett Stevens of the New York Times and Eli, I think they're so mad at some of the institutions of um, that were anti-Trump that that seems to them much more present um, than, than the Trump story. Um, I, I And I think... Um, where a lot of the debate went in, in Eli's commentary piece, there's a lot of detail. That uh, there's a lot of um, looking at the specifics of FISA applications and and a, and a disinclination to look at the simplicity of the big story. Jonathan, uh, in my case, I haven't seen any specific response to my article. Um, I made a strategic decision not to specifically name individuals or link to individuals. Because um, I wanted to tell the story in a more generalized way and not say, you know, this is because person X said thing Y. Um, but no, I haven't. You should I have Jesse on, though. I like, Je I, I like Jesse a lot. You and well, him should go all, on and talk. About, you guys should come yeah, on and talk about this again. Yeah. I wonder yeah, if we they're, can they're all him. great. They're all great people. And the last I heard from Jesse on it was months ago. That was kind mm -hmm. of my initial heads up that something was afoot. But that was some mm -hmm. time ago. Yeah. This um, is in no way a personal reflection, and and, and they, no, no, of course. And 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 these people were in in almost every case they did yeoman work during the actual Trump years, um, yeah. and um, uh, yeah, that, and, and, and that, that's why. So that's not that's not that's not to say. I mean, this is in no way disrespectful or dismissive. Um, I, I, I one of the things we may disagree with is that they may think the Trump years are really behind us, and Jonathan and I may think uh, not so fast. Yeah. We are going to leave it there. David from Jonathan Roush, you're great Americans. And David, you're a great Canadian. Uh, all the best Americans. That's just all that's the best. David, every time I talk to you, I forget. <laughs> and then you Ontario. have some moment where you say a boot. 
and then yeah. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm, uh, it's uh, uh, great to see both of your faces. Uh, we will be back tomorrow, this time for real with Radley Balco. Um, uh, and that'll be 22 hours and 59 minutes from now. And until then, Jonathan. In lieu of fun, we can't have fun anymore, but we can say, I thought there was nothing that would make me request that Ben wear the dog shirt, but the corn shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back tomorrow. I'm never going to stop with the corn cob in a hammock. I'm just going to like till my dying day. And it'll always.